evening. This is Jessica Byline at the White House. We're talking with Velma Dinkley, an assistant research scientist with NASA. And, uh, Hi, friends. Miss Dinkley, what can you tell us about NASA's new space station? Not very much, I'm afraid. The actual plans are kept in the top secret computer that only the president and key officials have access to. Cool it, guys! <laughs> Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo Extra. Now for those of you unfamiliar with the show, uh, just a quick overview. Basically the extra episodes are added value content. It is a a sister show to the podcast proper, a podcast named Scooby-Doo. And on that show, I interview creatives who've worked in some capacity on the Scooby-Doo franchise at some point over the last 50 years. And with uh, the extra shows, I basically do commentaries. Um, I'm not a fan so much of how Warner Brothers has been supporting or or their lack of support for their home video releases and their digital releases as far as any kind of archival content, commentaries, stuff like that. A lot of EPK stuff, but nothing that really kind of gets into the nuts and bolts of making the show or the episodes. So I kind of took it upon myself. I'm a very, I love features. It's something I spent a lot of time watching commentaries. And so when there's an opportunity to have a creative come on and do a commentary for an episode they wrote or directed or boarded or animated on is always a real treat. Now, in this case, on this episode of the show, I am welcoming back a former guest and friend of the show, Charles M. Howell. Now, Charles originally appeared on the podcast in episodes 20 and 21. If you're a regular listener, you've probably come across them. If you're not a regular listener, I would actually recommend going and checking those out. Charles and I talked a lot about uh, his history with writing and working for Hanna-Barbera and in animation and on Scooby-Doo, and it's all fun and great, but you're here for the commentary, so I'm going to stop telling you to go listen to other episodes, and I'm going to focus on introducing the one that we have here. So the commentary that Charles chose to do was the ninth episode of the new Scooby-Doo Mysteries called A Night Louse at the White House. We chose this episode because it features uh, at least one more member of the gang, Velma. Fred is still absent and uh, that is something that we do address in the course of the commentary. And Night Louse originally aired on the ABC network on November 3rd, 1984. It was split into two parts. Part one is credited to Charles, part two is credited to Charles and Tom Ruger. Tom Ruger was the story editor at the time, so I'm sure Tom contributed something to the script which uh, netted him that credit. I believe we touch on that briefly in the commentary, so no point in talking about it anymore here. As with all the commentary episodes that we do here, there's a brief intro with Charles, then we do a countdown, then we start the media, and then the fun begins. I hope you guys enjoy this commentary, this little peek behind the scenes of one of the older Scooby-Doo programs. This is actually, I think this is the oldest 
show that we've had a commentary for so far. Still working on getting further back, but we're not quite there yet. So I'll leave you to it. Once again, I give you Charles M. Howell and his commentary for A Night Louse at the White House. Hey everyone, we are here with Scooby-Doo writer and friend of the show, Charles Howell. Charles, how are you doing? Fine, how are you? Not too shabby, not too shabby at all. It's been a while since uh, we recorded your original interview episode, but Charles has come back to record a commentary for, is it the new Scooby-Doo Mysteries? <laughs> I should have checked. There's so many variations on that. the new Scooby-Doo Mysteries, I think, this season. Yeah, the new Scooby-Doo Mysteries. Okay. And Charles has been generous enough with his time to come back and uh, do a commentary for a new Scooby-Doo Mysteries episode that he co-wrote called Night Louse at the White House. Can I get a co-credit? I think I wrote, I just wrote this. Uh, on the first part, it's story by Charles M. Howell, and on the second part, Tom's name is on there as well. Okay. I'm thinking maybe because Tom is the story editor, he probably... Well, he was a story editor. Yeah. Sometimes that happens. By yeah. the way, this is a pandemic, so... <laughs> my time. I'm begging for things to occupy my time. And I'm happy to give you things to do. So. Good. Now, um, the way that we usually do these is I do a quick countdown. I go three, two, one, play. Everybody uh, set your DVDs or your digital media, however you're watching the episode, to zero, 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 zero. And pause the show here. We'll wait for you. And when you're done that, we will uh, start up with the countdown. So see you in a second. All right, so we're going to do the countdown now. Charles, are you ready? Ah, sure. All right. So three, two, one, play. Ooh. All right, so I chose Night Loss at the White House for you mostly because it featured almost the entire gang. Yeah. The season did not have, did not feature Velma and Fred. Right. Right. There were, there were seasons where it was just Shaggy and Scooby. And um, I, then they had Scooby Dumb in there. There were seasons where it was mostly just comedy shorts. Yeah, this episode has uh, Daddy Do. Uh yeah, Scrappy. Yeah. This whole season has Scrappy Do, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was Shaggy, Scrappy, Daphne, and Scooby. Okay, now we're black, now we're night last at the White House, okay. So these episodes were broken up into two pieces, and this was one that actually carried over from the first segment to the second segment. Right. What was the, what was the logic in that? Was it because it was an episode featuring Velma? Or? I, just when they had a story that they thought would make a good full half hour, they did this and broke it up into two parts. The idea was it would be 
whatever was good for the story. But I think we mostly ended up doing full half hours uh, this season. I know that's all I wrote. And how many episodes did you get this season? Do you remember? I wrote about four this season and then came back three or four and then came back uh, the next season and wrote a whole bunch. I think I ended up, I think I ended up writing, somebody said 12 at one point, but I don't think that's quite right. Um, but yeah. And what was the impetus to bringing Velma back? Was that your idea or was that something that was, that came well, down from above? They felt that Velma was good for mysteries because she would see the clues and she'd be, and, and nobody really quite knew what, Freddie was kind of a stiff. And uh, so Velma was the one who stayed in the picture more, I think. And Daphne is, I think Daphne's in this whole season. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those are the larger gang, but they never sort of knew what to do with Freddie. Um, I guess the next season that I worked on, they, all of them were back, I don't remember. And Scrappy, you know, people hated Scrappy. They, they, um, the writers never like juggling another character in there. Uh, but um, it's also that they can promote something new about the show. They, this ran for what twenty-five seasons in some form or another in prime time and uh, on Saturday morning. Yeah, when the Scooby Doo Scrappy Doo show premiered. Um, well, I mean, the, the cult concept of Scrappy kind of saved the show right. because the network was kind of waffling on going with a new pilot or continuing Scooby-Doo. Yeah, yeah. Um, they came up with the Scrappy idea and the network was like, yeah, okay, we'll buy it. Yeah. You've talked to Tom on this. Though. To Tom? No, I've yet to talk to Tom. Tom oh, Ruger. He, he talked to you. Where did you hear that thing about the, uh, what the network wanted and stuff? Uh, that was from Mark Evanier. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was he was involved in the writing of the the first episode that featured Scrappy. He oh. Was, he yeah. was the writer that got final credit on that episode. Yeah. So he was kind of there for a good chunk of the process. Yes, maybe that was the year before. Uh, this is not the first season of Scrappy, I don't think, is it? No. Yeah. No, the Scooby Doo Scrappy show came first. Yeah. Do you remember where the idea for the White House mystery and the, the presidential ghosts came from? I remember writing a whole bunch of premises and this one getting approved. So this, uh, this came from me. I had conversations with Tom about, you know, what do you want to do? And um, this just seemed like a place they hadn't been yet. I, I, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but a haunted White House seemed like a good thing to do. I remember thinking that the the lack of Fred might have been a, a a lack of Frank Welker, but then I think Frank Welker does the voice of the president in this episode. Yeah, uh, yeah, he, Frank was always around. I, no, I don't think that was the, the thing at all. Um, I remember when they brought back Velma and uh, and Daphne, you know, they had to find them, and I don't know that. Heather North really wanted to do it at first. I don't know. Tom would tell you that. But then we brought them back and got a couple more seasons. And I think they were all there for that final season with Vincent Van Gogh, weren't they? Uh, no. 
No, that's just uh, Velma, Shaggy, Scooby, Scrappy, and Flim Flam. Oh, so Fred was out of luck. Yeah. Wasn't there as well, yes. Frank is never out of a job, you know, I mean. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Great. He's great. So, any thoughts about this? Any questions? What was what was kind of the general process of having a story? Uh, you, you said you pitched a number of stories, and this was the one that was picked. Yeah. Um, how does that process work? And, and usually, I talk through things with Tom, uh, write up a bunch uh, that he thought would be good or whatever, and uh, and then they were sent off to the network which was Jenny Trias and Amy Simon. They were very supportive. They were uh, a great network to work for, ABC at that time. And then they would they would choose. We, we'd talk to them. We would stay in touch with them. And they would say, oh, oh be sure to get somebody. If you're going to do that, be sure to get some of this in. I remember the first one I wrote was Scooby Alamode. And uh, they said, oh, you've got to get a, a pastry like a cream puff assembly line, like the Lucy and Ethel thing. And so, so I wrote that in there. The, you know, the, I was thinking about all of these, and um, we were new, that, and the network really wanted fast gags. And I'd worked for Hanna-Barbera before as an animator, and they wanted like Warner Brothers kinds of gags. He made them laugh in the room. He said, oh yeah, that's great. And um, Hanna-Barbera never really did that. And so the timing is awfully slow on some of these things. Hanna-Barbera, when Hanna-Barbera started, people referred to it as illustrated radio, which is really closer to their, you know, to their strength. And uh, they would do gags, they would do visual gags, but you had to be careful. There wasn't a lot of, of quick action. If, if a character had to run, there was a run cycle that was already animated, if it, you know. So, so there wasn't a lot of specificity and, and parts got sort of assembled together. And I, I don't know, I think Ray Patterson did our timing. I and, think he's the supervising director on these, yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, I don't know what his, what his instructions were, a lot of stuff was awfully slow and uh, somebody said if they time it slowly you know there's there fewer gags fewer extremes and all that stuff so it ends up being cheaper uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's really the the uh, criterion or not this season is definitely more like gag centered gag heavy they wanted that they like wanted even the even the scooby-doo scrappy-doo show was kind of just inserting Scrappy into sort of the gang's typical sort of formula. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, they wanted they wanted that kind of stuff, and we wrote it. And I it, wondered if that was, like, partly Tom's influence, because, you know, you look at the, the shows that Tom's worked on, uh, all the Scooby shows, and then going on to, like, Tiny Toons and whatnot, yeah. and I mean... Well, certainly, I think Tom and and I and... A lot of people wanted to do, we all got into animation because of the Warner Brothers cartoons, after all, and we wanted to do that kind of stuff. And how do our various stuff just was sort of not that. And, uh, but 
I was thinking maybe we should have been more realistic about what could be done, but that's not what the, the network wanted. The network wanted us to put through scripts with a lot of gags in them, and yet they're kind of dashing back and forth and finesses and, you know, bringing something in from off screen and all of that was just not the style of the Hanna-Barbera stuff. I'd actually heard somewhere that because a lot of people who had been directing at Hanna-Barbera at that point in kind of that mid to late 70s period um, had been with the company for a really long time and some of those directors' comedic timing may have been a little bit off sort of in their more mature years. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to contradict that. I hate to slam anybody, but yeah, I think maybe that's the case. And I just think it wasn't, uh, I mean, they could do a zip OS like this, but um, it was mostly the funny voices and the gag was giving them Scooby snack and so on. And the fast finesses in this just really drag. Uh, this isn't as bad. Looking at this, it, it's it's not as bad as it was in my memory. <laughs> better than I remembered them. Because I think another thing that happened was that the drawing style got a, a little clunky. And um, and then Mitch Shower came in and designed a pup named Scooby-Doo. And everything got kind of fun again. The designs were more fun and, you know, there was more freedom for kind of gags that we would never have done in uh, Scooby-Doo. Well, I think uh, this is a period in the studio's history where uh, production had reached a, a fever pitch. They'd had so many shows, Joe sold so many shows and they were pro producing so much, so many feet of, of film that they were literally hiring people like off the street to come in and be in-betweeners. And uh, they did say that, uh, I just finished reading uh, Bill Hanna's biography, and he said that there was there was a slight dip in kind of like the air quote quality of the animation, just because you had uh, previously at the studio there was a bunch of people who worked in animation right. who were coming and working on the planned animation, the limited animation. But now you had people who were coming off the street who had never worked in animation before, and they were learning as they went. Yeah, so. oh, absolutely. And there were people, some of them had art school backgrounds, but they didn't really know what a scene was or how to lay it out. Yeah. I mean, I remember at Filmation getting a scene and the character's supposed to open the door, but the door is called to be painted on the background. And and so you go to the, I, I went to, a, to the layout artist once on one of those things, and like yelled at me and I realized I have to go to the supervisor <laughs> and uh, and so I did and you know he had no idea he said I don't know what's on the background or whatever you know I, all I know is I need a door so you know obviously a, a, a more experienced layout artist would have seen that it's all called for on, in the scene uh, but they don't just don't have any idea yeah so yeah there was some of that um, the in-betweeners, yeah, some of those were were kind of new, but I don't I don't see those kinds of problems here really. It was more just a general design thing. Um, the characters are much looser. Which one? The characters in general. These here. Like the, the posing and the movement is is a lot more loose compared to um, 
you know, the original Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Or even the new Scooby-Doo movies or Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo. How do you mean loose? How do I phrase this? When I say loose, I, I mean that the characters are, you know, energetic. They move themselves freely. They, you know, they don't look like stiffs standing there with an arm moving and so on. I, I think there's a charm to that limited animation and that, that original where are you look. Um, it's kind of so indelibly, you know, Yeah. that's the Scooby-Doo look. So when the characters... Uh, for example, in this episode, uh, they have a little bit more of a, kind of a rubbery feel. Some of the posing isn't as you know iconic as right, right. It was, and it was probably so iconic because they only had so many poses to do. So that's yeah. what we remember is those poses being. Yeah, everybody would keep Daphne in that pose with her hands on her hips. Yeah, sometimes she'd walk off stage with her hands on her hips like that. And it would just, because that's what the drawing was. And these were Ewo's drawings. I mean, a lot of the animators were used to working on, uh, you know, the Flintstones and the Jetsons. And in the Flintstones, sometimes Fred was two and a half heads high. Sometimes he was almost three heads high. And you really, it wasn't as noticeable. One animator told me, you know, if I do Fred's nose a, a pencil line larger by the width of the pencil line, nobody will know. But if I do that to Daphne's nose, if I make that error, she's Jimmy Durandy all of a sudden. <laughs> you have to, they, they are characters that, they're not, it's not uh, Michelangelo, but they're characters that require more precise drawing. And Ewo always did those kind of fun poses. By that point, things like the model sheets were designed to sell the show. When General Mills was producing the shows, they just said, yeah, great. And Hanna-Barbera went off and did stuff. This is like the networks involved in stories, they're involved in approving character designs, and they don't really always know what is going to work in animation. Having read Ewo's biography, I believe at this time he was he was still part of the studio and still involved, but he was less involved with kind of like the daily designing. No, he was involved with the with the main character designs that sold the show. the 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 incidental characters were uh, Bob Singer, I think, and. Uh, and, and I, I don't know how much he had ever been involved with designing layouts and stuff. We're letting this whole episode just slide by. Is there, <laughs> is there anything you want to ask me about this? Well, I mean, these things are actually somewhat related to kind of what's going on. I mean, we're talking about the posing and the animation style and what was going on at the studio. So I think it's relevant. Okay. I mean, if you, want to, if you want to touch on some of the story points. I don't know. Jump on it. <laughs> I don't know the uh, where are we in this episode? Almost at the end. Yeah, I remember there was a George Washington finesse in here where they went into the museum part of the thing that just was really tediously slow at the time. Shanks was to pile a, a whole bunch of blankets on top of the bad guy just in like a whirlwind of you know dry brush action, and it was animated so he's bringing his arms in and laying each blanket on the guy, one on the other. It's supposed to be fast. It's supposed to be bury the guy so we can get out of here. And then he bursts up all angry. And they make it like he's, you know, this would be Ray, this would be whoever was directing. Uh, and and they, they use the same animation for each time. So that yeah. he's 
thing blank and on top of the thing. It just looks boring as hell. And what's the guy doing just lying there through that? And, um, and you know, it was things like that that were, uh, I love the way how they're shaking together. That's very strange. <laughs> but, you know, that was the kind of stuff that just, you just felt like no animator or director was really living in this stuff. They were taking instructions without, you know, oh, here's this. And he's just laying there. And now he bursts up. I, you know, I mean, if you can picture a Warner Brothers gag, with, oh, here, you're, you're hot, you need blanks, okay, here, boom, and let's, let's get out of here. Yeah. You know, he, he jumps up. That's what we were thinking when we wrote that. I think I wrote that scene. And it just uh, doesn't come out anywhere near that. You've, are they all sleeping? Are they, you know, what the fuck is going on here? Can I say that? I, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't talk dirty. That's fine. You can say it. <laughs> Hell, it's interesting to think in, in those terms that, because I know a lot of people who do think poorly of these these episodes these shows a lot of it does have to do with the fact that they went uh very much sort of in in the gag arena um and probably aren't feeling that the gags are working and and realizing that they're written in the style of you know a classic warner brothers cartoon and they're supposed to be a lot faster and punchier uh, i'm really curious now like how this would play and how people would think to watch these now and and it also makes me think you know be cool scooby-doo uh it's the second to last scooby production that was on tv uh, a number of years ago and uh they were a comedy centered show and they had a lot of you know really fast timing and fast humor and sight gags and whatnot yeah. and, and wow. i thought it was incredibly successful and now i'm wondering this if is that was applied to this yeah th that was a a, a uh, current one of the recent versions of Scooby-Doo, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, they were not operating under the same, this was a production line, you know? And I think people were, you know, they, they were rejuvenating the thing. They were allowed to, I mean, we were allowed to write this stuff. And what I was saying earlier, I just, I just think we would have been better off writing more like illustrated radio on this and not trying to do those kinds of gags. But the network wanted, you, you get the network in the room and show, oh, and then you can do this. And they laugh. Oh, yeah, keep that in. And so you do. Uh, and, and then you get this kind of thing. So, yeah, I think, obviously, the characters have great potential for comedy. And nowadays, there are, uh, you know, animation is, oh, I don't know what's happening here. I don't know. They... That those shows weren't done in flash or anything, were they? They were, yeah. But you know, cell paintings done on the computer is cheaper, and I mean, I don't know. They could uh, spend a little more time and attention. Yeah. Was writing the gags fun, and then it was just the execution was kind of disappointing. Yeah, writing the gags is fun. I mean, you're you're always writing for yourselves. You're writing to make yourselves laugh, and you're writing to make the network laugh. There, there, you're. You're not writing for the audience. 
the audience, because you're writing for the network, really, when you're thinking of the audience. Uh, you don't want to do things that are over the audience's head, the kids, but your audience is the network. They're the ones who say yay or nay, and they're the ones who, who essentially pay you. And so that's your audience when you're writing. And you're, you're writing for yourself, first of all. You can't write comedy unless you're making yourselves laugh. And, uh, and then the network is the immediate audience. They're the gatekeeper. You can't, it's not going to get on TV for the kids unless the network wants it. So. What was the general demographic that you were writing to, like, uh, as far as, or what, who you thought was watching the show? Because, you know, those Warner Brothers cartoons were obviously written for the animators and the writers and, right. you know, Chuck and Tex and Frizz and, and all of them. Uh, and they, they appealed to a really wide demographic. And yeah, the movie theater audience. Uh, yeah. and so every movie had a cartoon. It might be, you know, some film noir or it might be a comedy or whatever. These are written for Saturday morning. And, you know, um, I think the demographic for this show was probably 8 to 12 or something. That's what I figured, yeah. And uh, we thought about that. But every time they would bring in people who were experts in comedy, uh, how to write comedy for children, and we'd done focus groups and whatever. I'd never written anything. And um, we had a, we had, they had one meeting for us where uh, the, the woman was saying, now, uh, oh, well, we're done, aren't we? Uh, well, you finish your story. Well, this woman came in and she was going to tell us about writing comedy. And she said, uh, you know, for young children, slapstick is frightening to them. Uh, so you can't do slapstick for young children. This was, you know, her particular theory. And they had hired her as a consultant. I asked an innocent question. And she, she, she showed some video of her talking to children in a classroom. And it was a young group. And, uh, she showed some cartoon and she said, did you like it when the character fell down? And she's like shaking her head and the kid said, oh no. And then she goes to an, another classroom of eighth graders and shows the same cartoon and she goes, did you like it when that character fell down? And they, yeah, yeah, that was funny. So, so they're responding to her. They're responding to her and I just asked, you know, what, what, how do you set up the groups that you work with? Where do you work with kids? And she said, she said, oh, I don't work with kids, but I've read a lot of these things. And then, then it was like, then the, the, the restrictions were off, you know, the door was open. And there, there was one guy who had written for, gosh, I don't know, Jackie Gleason, and I Love Lucy, you know, he was an older writer. He said, you're gonna tell me how to write comedy? <laughs> I've written for, you know, he listed all these credits. And, um, other, she had said things like, here's a funny joke for kids. Rearrange words. Like instead of saying walk the dog, if you say dog the walk, young kids will laugh at that. And so what, the, what, what are we going to do with that? And somebody, uh, yourself, fuck, go. You're passing a little note with that. And there were things like that going around the room. And uh, th this poor woman... I don't think people were cruel to her, but there were questions she couldn't answer. She hadn't done a lot of research. She had read books about comedy, you know, and you can't write comedy that way. And she was in tears at the end of the meeting, oh. which I felt 
sorry for her, but you know, a lot of the older riders specifically felt that they had the uh, leeway and the, you know, they could just be demanding of her and ask her. Yeah. Really. Most of us young guys were just sitting there. I didn't think my question was such a horrible attack. I just was curious. Do they do focus groups? Do they do, you know, they bring kids in at random? Do they get them from schools all the time? I said, no, I, I don't work with kids. We just did those. I have a friend who teaches, and we did those in, you know, classrooms at her school. So, so I don't know. Well, that's, that's the end of the episode, and I guess the end of the story. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was our commentary uh, with myself and Charles Howell, the writer of Night Louse at the White House for the new Scooby-Doo Mysteries. Thank you so much, uh, Charles, for sharing your experiences and your stories and, and coming on the show. Oh, thank you. By the way, that title is horrible. I don't know <laughs> where it came from, but yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. And for the listeners out there, stay tuned because there will be another commentary that uh, Charles is going to be sticking around and doing with me. And uh, that'll be the pilot episode of A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, which was a bicycle built for Boo. So watch for that. And yeah, thanks again, Charles. We'll catch you on the flip side. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. So there you have it. That concludes our commentary with Scooby-Doo writer and friend of the show, Charles M. Howell. Now, as you may have heard at the end of that conversation, reference was made to yet another commentary. Charles and I recorded two that evening, and the first one was A Night Louse at the White House, and the second was the previously mentioned Pup Named Scooby-Doo pilot, A Bicycle Built for Boo. I'm not sure when that commentary is going to land. I will keep you guys posted through the social media. If you're not currently following the social media for the podcast, uh, be sure to like, follow, share, and subscribe on uh, Twitter at ScoobyDooCast. Facebook is a podcast named ScoobyDoo. Instagram is a podcast named ScoobyDoo as well. And there is the WordPress blog, ScoobyDooCast.wordpress.com, where I put up the odd blog post and also share interviews, uh, short text interviews called The Apocalypse Variations, which has to do with the variant covers for the Scooby Apocalypse comic book series from DC and Hanna-Barbera. If you get the show off of iTunes while you're there, rate and review the show. The ratings and the reviews really do help with getting the Apple algorithms working and getting the show into the eyes and ears of people who might be interested in this particular content. And word of mouth is a powerful tool. I do not hesitate in weaponizing it in the name of the podcast. So feel free to spread the word with family and friends if they're into Scooby-Doo, Hanna-Barbera, or animation in general. And with that, I'm going to wrap up proceedings here. Thank you guys so much for listening, for downloading the show. I really appreciate your continued support. And uh, stay tuned for the next full-length interview on a podcast named Scooby-Doo. And uh, I hope to get another commentary out to all y'all soon. So until then, take care. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time on a podcast named Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo. <laughs>